You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. We are back in Revelation today. And let me just chart a course for 2024. We will, Lord willing, be finishing the book of Revelation in a few weeks. And I plan to then do a, a one message summary of just all of the lenses and filters people use to read and understand Revelation through. And then I'm going to share with you where I land on the isms and the ists and the systems. And hopefully by then it'll just be a, yeah, we, we knew that already, Pastor, but uh, hopefully you'll better understand why and it will equip you as you study the rest of Scripture. Then I plan on a, a short series on stewardship. I think there's value in us visiting this topic from time to time as God gives us talents and skills and gifts and possessions. He expects them to be used in certain ways. And when we use them according to the manufacturer's instructions, we experience the most blessings from it. And so we'll do that short series. And then somewhere in there, we'll have a couple messages on Easter during that celebration. And then, Lord willing, the rest of the year, we will anchor ourselves in two letters in the New Testament, the letters to the Thessalonians. There's a couple reasons for that. Number one is Thessalonians provide several tie-ins to concepts that we've been studying in Revelation. But then also, I think the theme of both of those letters is hope. And I don't know about you, as I look back on 23, as I look forward to 24, all of the knowns and unknowns, I think we live in a time where we could do with a, a booster shot, sorry I went there, of hope. And so hopefully that study will provide just that. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. And you can find Revelation 13 on page 1039. And to set that up, I need to establish that I am confident in my manhood. Now, I say that because what I'm about to say might seem like I'm violating my manhood. And that's this. I love Jane Austen movies. I mean, over Christmas break, we watched Emma, we watched Persuasion, and we watched The Ultimate Pride and Prejudice, not the BBC version, 2005, Kira Knightley, talk to me. Yeah, no. Okay, why do I love John, Jane Austen movies? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, because if I watch the movie, I don't have to watch the books. Well, sorry, parents. You Kids, you do need to read books. Books are good, but movies are better. So I watch Jane Austen movies so I don't have to read the books. But then the second reason is there's a reason why Jane Austen's stories are timeless. And it's because she did an amazing job really drawing out human interests, drawing out uh, human context. And one of them that continues through the different movies that I've watched is the contrast between the aristocracy and common people. And you see that contrast throughout the movies, but there's, there's one event in these movies that seems to bring down the, the walls of separation, at least for a night. And that's the social event of a ball. 
Because at a ball, you get to get dressed up, you go to these massive houses, you have lots of food, lots of beverages, and you, you dance. And typically, at least in the movies, you dance not necessarily with your social status or your social class, but there's a, there's a lot of mixing. And so for the people of those communities, the idea that a ball was coming to their town was cause for excitement. But eclipsing that excitement, as you might remember from Pride and Prejudice, is the scene where the Bennett girls are in the drawing room with Darcy and Bingley, and Bingley announces, well, you should have a ball. See, I've watched that quite a bit. And Kitty Bennett says, a ball, which obviously is inappropriate because in a drawing room with aristocracy, you have to stay mild-mannered. But she's excited because there's the expectation of a ball, but then she gets even more excited because she and her family are invited. The idea of Revelation 19, 1 through 10, is this idea of coming together for a celebration, like a ball. And here it's going to be a wedding feast. And I would encourage you to look at the big idea in your notes because this is more than just an informational study. This is a personal evaluation, and that's this. The invitation to the wedding feast is extended to you. But the question you must answer is, will you be there? Let me read the text, and you will see that I'm going to categorize this by the term hallelujah, and you'll see it all throughout the text. Look at what it says in verse 1. After this, John writes, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Four times in this passage, we see the word hallelujah. 
twice we see not the word, but the principle of what it means. And so there's a three-part analysis of this passage that I hope you will write down and you'll follow. The first one is the first hallelujah, and that is hallelujah because of salvation. Hallelujah because of salvation. The word hallelujah translates a Hebrew term which literally means praise Yahweh. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might recognize this name. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping name of God. It is translated in most of our English translations with a capital L and then a small capital O-R-D. That signals the reader to the fact that the covenant-keeping name of God is what is being used. And so John here uses the term hallelujah, which by the way, in the Christian church, we use the term hallelujah quite a bit. We sing songs with hallelujah. But what's interesting is the only time it occurs in the New Testament is this chapter. I'll tell you why that's important in just a moment. So literally, it says praise Yahweh. Now, I submit to you that we need to lower, level the playing field. Because the temptation for us when we think of praising God is Often what Gregory Beale says, here's the quote on the screen. Often our praise of God focuses on what he has done for us. Isn't this true? When we pray, when we sing songs of praise, we are tempted to default to focusing on gratitude for what God has done for us. But the challenge of that default is that it often, even in our worship and praise of him, puts me-centered lenses on. But what Beale reminds us is that the context of these hallelujahs is that the praise is centered on who God is. And what he has done entirely apart from the circumstances of our individual lives. That's teased out by the description that the saints provide in verse 1. Salvation and glory belong and power to our God. Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. Which, by the way, can we just linger in that for a moment? How much in our day and age is the concept of truth a moving target? I mean, even in the church, it's almost as if we need to apologize for holding a strong conviction. And even in our effort to proclaim truth, we often couch it, we often clarify it, we're often evaluating different angles, potentially looking for loopholes, but the statement is straightforward, isn't it? It says his judgments are true and just. End of story, Mike dropped. What, an, what a reality. This is who God is. But it says, verse 2, also that he judged the great prostitute. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Revelation, you understand who he's referring to here. He's referring to the world system. And you can go back to chapter 13 and see how he describes the world system with two different descriptions of beasts and then, a, and then an idol. But we, we learned from the study of chapter 13 that the beasts and Babylon and the prostitute are the world system designed by Satan to fulfill what we think we need. To counterfeit what God has designed us to enjoy. 
to counterfeit God's standards. And the world system appeals to our lusts and desires, doesn't it? That's why it's referred to in verse 2 here in chapter 19 and all throughout Revelation as sexual immorality. That's not literal sexual immorality. It's highlighting the fact that the world system appeals to our lusts and our human nature. But then we also see that the world system appeals to the lie that somehow what it offers will bring fulfillment. That's why at the end of chapter 18, remember when we studied chapter 18, verse 21 says, A mighty angel took a great millstone and threw it into the sea. And this was symbolically demonstrating just as a millstone thrown into the sea is not going to float back up, that this judgment that God was pronouncing on the world system was final. And the world sees this final judgment and realizes that its lusts and all of the opportunities that the world system provides are over. And that's why the kings and the merchants and the workers of the sea are mourning. But God has defeated the world system. And then he mentions prostitutes. And we learned in chapter 18 that the imagery of a prostitute is that the world system produces these different movements, these new entertainers, these new philosophies, these new books that are written, these new technologies, the new possessions, the new career opportunities, as though it will somehow fulfill what only God is intended to satisfy. And so the prostitute keeps coming up over and over and over again. And God looks at this arch enemy of the people of God and the saints declare who he is which by the way how I found the arch enemy of God is look at the end of verse 2 God has avenged on her the prostitute the world system the blood of his servants do not be surprised beloved when the world persecutes you do not be surprised when the politicians do not pass legislation that upholds righteousness. Do not be surprised when churches that we have followed for years stray from the truth. Because the ultimate objective of the world system is the blood of the saints. And it is a powerful arch enemy. Maybe you grew up playing sports. I, I sure did. And I remember throughout those growing up years that there were certain teams we just could not beat. For me in Little League, it was the Cardinals. Ugh. Maybe that's why I despise the St. Louis Cardinals. Forgive me if you're a fan. We would add kids, we would recruit, we would do extra practices, and we could not beat those Cardinals. Maybe your experience was not in athletics, maybe it was academics, and no matter how hard you studied, when the grades would come out, there was always smarty pants that got a better grade than you. Maybe relationally, you, you see a guy or a girl that looks like Barbie or Ken, and you, you say, oh, if I could just be in a relationship with them, but you realize that in life, most typically, Barbie gets Ken. Maybe it's in your workplace where you work very, very hard, but it seems like your coworker always gets the promotion. Let's make this spiritual. Do you ever look around at the news and the world around us and draw a conclusion cynically that the world will always win? You ever agree with the psalmist that as you look around at your life and context that the wicked are always the ones that seem to prosper? 
Well, let's make this personal. Do you ever have something in your life, maybe right here, right now, in January 2024, that's an area of sin that no matter how hard you try, no matter how many books you buy, no matter how much counseling you pursue, it seems like you can never gain victory over Or maybe there's an area of discipline in your life that is lazy and every year you come up with a new resolution and a new plan and by March it's over. Beloved, listen, there are sources in the lives that we live that are influenced by the world system that seem like they can never be defeated. But what this passage is telling us is that God is intrinsically salvation. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. And so there is no enemy, there is no arch rival, including your own sin, that you cannot overcome with the power of the God who saves. And so as the saints and the 24 elders and the four living creatures are reflecting on the character of God, they say, hallelujah, three times. And what's the hope that you and I can have? Well, look at verse 5. It's a phrase that I just read right past until I started digging in it. It says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. Do you see that in the text? What what does this mean? Well, here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. By those who fear him, it means to those who resist the counterfeit salvation of Babylon. Which, by the way, if you've just been following along in Revelation, that counterfeit is a really good one. (laughs) This is not just somebody printing on their inkjet money. This is one that even the secret service have a hard time determining if it's a counterfeit. The world system is good. It is powerful. It is deceiving. And we've seen that it is so powerful that it it would attempt to deceive even the elect. But here it says, no, no, no. We as humans can actually live a life that is characterized by fearing him. How? By being devoted to salvation that the king of the city of God offers. This is our resource. This is our hope. This is cause for hallelujah, salvation. Number two, the second cause for salvation, sorry, hallelujah, is celebration. Celebration. By the way, we're entering into the gymnasium of Bible study right now. What I mean by that is y'all are going to be doing some bench pressing right now, some pretty heavy weight. And so I'm going to be giving you some concepts. I'm going to be giving you some passages that I would encourage you to write down. I'm probably going to go at a pretty quick clip, but I'm going to spot you. That means as you're pushing up and you're letting it down, I'm not going to let it crush your chest. But I need your prayer for that. I need you to pray that my words will be clear, that my words will be accurate. I need you to engage. I need you to commit. I need you to pray that as I'm giving you all of these concepts, that you will actually stretch to understand because if you do, then you will be ready for the invitation. So look at what it says in verse 6. It says, hallelujah. Once again, praise Yahweh. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Which, by the way, the phrase the Almighty reigns is written in the same way Revelation eleven fifteen is. And that's why I believe, once again, that the book of Revelation is recapitulation. It's a replay of the same scene over and over and over again from different angles, different vantage points, different scenes, because the author wants us to get it. 
And back in 1115, he declared that there will be a point in time in the future where the king will set up his throne and he will reign forever and ever. And I think he's referring to that same event right here. And it's cause for the people in heaven and the 24 elders and the living creatures to sing out, hallelujah. But, 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 but why? Why is this different than the hallelujahs of verses 1 through 5? Well, to set that up, I, I want you to see that there are two themes that are developed in these verses. The theme of a wedding and the theme of a wedding feast. Now, I'm coming back to the word hallelujah as the literal translation of praise Yahweh because I think what John is doing by mentioning this word the only time in the New Testament is he's drawing us as readers to the Old Testament. I think he's specifically using the covenant name of God from the Old Testament of Yahweh to draw our attention to the Old Testament. And so in doing so, we'll understand the development of the theme and the story of Scripture of the theme of a wedding. Let me show that to you. You can write down Jeremiah 2 and verse 2. This is really where I believe the idea and the theme of God in a marriage relationship with his people begins. Jeremiah 2, verse 2. The Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. I think this is referring to the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai. Where God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. There were expectations in that covenant relationship of faithfulness. Faithfulness with the groom God and the bride Israel. But tragically, Jeremiah 3.8 tells us how that marriage went. It says in Jeremiah 3.8, it says, She saw that for all the adulteries of her treacherous sister, uh, that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Let's just stop right there. What a concept. At this time, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, 10 to the north called Israel, two to the south called Judah. And God is speaking to Judah and saying, hey, you remember that covenant relationship? You remember that marriage that I had between me and with Israel? And remember, they were unfaithful, so therefore I've actually divorced them. What an amazing concept of the God of the universe. And then tragically, verse 8, it says, Yet her treacherous sister Judah, the southern two tribes, did not fear. They did not respond. She too went and played the whore. And as the book of Hosea says, that God's going to divorce Judah. What an amazing concept. But this is the development of the, the concept and the theme of marriage between God and his people. Now, when we come to Hosea chapter 2, A seed is planted that someday in the future, there will be a renewal of vows between God and his people. Hosea chapter 2. The verses are up on the screen, verses 14 through 23. Now Jesus assists by providing more light to the furniture of prophecy and helps us better understand more clearly the true point of this theme. You can write down Matthew chapter 9, 14 and 15. 
Jesus is asked by the religious leaders of his day, why do your disciples not fast? And and Jesus is drawing the attention of the religious leaders who would have been very familiar with the Old Testament in this theme of marriage to the fact that the ultimate groom of God's people, the bride, is Christ himself. Then you can write down Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, where Paul continues to advance this idea As he gives instruction to husbands and to wives, he explains this is ultimately a shadow of the ultimate marriage, which is Christ and his church. And where will this all come together? Well, the parables of Jesus help us with that. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is an example of this, that the ultimate marriage between God and his people is culminated in his kingdom. So this is the advance of the theme of marriage throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, from Israel as the illustration to Christ showing us that he is the centerpiece to Paul explaining that the people of God being married to Christ is the, is the ultimate group of marriage that will one day find culmination in the kingdom. And I think what John is doing in Revelation 19 by drawing our attention to Yahweh is he's tying this all together and saying there will be a day when the marriage will be complete. Hallelujah. Now there's the second theme, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, many of your Bibles probably have a paragraph header that says the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the question must be asked, is what John is describing in verses 6 through 10 an actual marriage supper with actual food? Is this an actual event in the future that is a one-off event where this is the feast, this is the supper, we'll enjoy it, and then we'll move on for eternity? And I, I think the answer to this is no. And here's why. Because of the theme of feasts and weddings. Which here's an image up on the screen, and I won't spend much time working through these texts, but you can see feasts were times of celebration. Feasts were uh, opportunities to focus on victory. Feasts were opportunities to, to celebrate loyalty. And by the time you get to the New Testament, there's a beautiful illustration of the set-apart value of wedding feasts. And it's not up on the screen, but do you remember where Jesus' first recorded miracle takes place in the Gospel of John? At a wedding feast, turning the water into wine. Now, why is a wedding feast so much better than peace treaties? So much better than just simple hospitality for guests? It's because at a wedding feast, it's all celebration. At a peace treaty, there's still question of, will the two parties actually meet the requirements? For the guests, you don't necessarily know, like, what is the guest? What's the relationship? How, this isn't going to be an ongoing relationship. But at a wedding feast, it's all positive. Both families are celebrating. The, the bride and the groom are celebrating. It's all good. It's all festivities. And the, this development of the feast has been developed all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And I think the seed was planted back in Isaiah 25, which we studied a few weeks ago, where Isaiah says that on the mountain of God, he will prepare for all peoples a feast. And I think what John is doing with the theme of marriage and the theme of the wedding ceremony feast is he's bringing that all together to say, when God judges Babylon, 
He will set up an eternal relationship where the marriage that we've experienced partially here this side of eternity will be fully realized. And it causes not just hallelujah, but look at this, beloved, a crescendo of hallelujah. How do I say that? Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Nothing fancy here yet. In fact, if you go back to verse 1, it's almost exactly the same words that we saw in verse 1. So there's already this hallelujah, but here's the crescendo. Look at the additional description. Like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is a crescendo, beloved, of hallelujah. Now the best way I can illustrate this Because it's the first Sunday of 2024, and y'all know I love to do this, here's a baseball illustration. Watch the video. Okay, that was a flop. Because as I looked at on y'all, the same thing happened this service as the other two services, and that is there are three people smiling. So either y'all aren't Royals fans, either you can't get excited about what happened those years ago, or maybe you're just not following, I don't know. But I get excited. This is the third time I've watched this this morning. But, but here's what I want you to see from this. You, you saw at the beginning of the video, as the pitcher is going into his stretch, there's already a roar going on. There's celebration going on with the multitude, with the crowd. But then the pitch is thrown, and Josh Donaldson hits the ground ball to moose, and he catches it, and he throws it to first, and the last out is recorded, and whoa, there's a whole new level. Why? You say, well, they've won the championship. No. It's because we as royal fans knew true reality. You see, for nearly three decades, we had watched horrible baseball. <laughs> for nearly three decades of spring trainings, we believed the world system lie, that somehow this was our team, this was our year. We understood in that moment of celebration, true reality, and that is we are not the Yankees, we are not the Dodgers, we are the Royals. And in that moment of our knowledge of true reality, it led to a crescendo of celebration. In fact, that's a quote I'd ask the team to put up on the screen. The knowledge of true reality fuels our crescendo of celebration. So, beloved, if you want to be able to live a life that is characterized by a crescendo of celebration, you need to see your true reality. And it's actually unpacked here in verse 8. Would you look at chapter 19, verse 8? It says that the bride clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, just use a little bit of imagination, and you can imagine, especially in the ancient world, this is a beautiful bride. And so as you're picturing her, you may be tempted to say, well, of course the groom wants to marry her. But that's missing the phrase that led up to that. Look at what it says in verse 8. It was granted to her. She did not own these linens. She could not put them on herself. She needed it gifted to her. 
And beloved, even in this, we, we still might not be able to experience the full weight of our spiritual reality before it's been granted to us. So would you just look up at the screen at Ezekiel chapter 16. Listen to the description that God gives in verse 4. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Sit in this imagery. Nor wrapped in swaddling clothes, not washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And I saw you, I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, sit in this imagery. You see, I think so many times when it comes to spiritual reality, we are, see ourselves as the, the bride with the white linen. It's like, of course, God, you would choose me. No. We are that infant baby in the wilderness wallowing in our own blood. The cord has not been cut. We can't do anything. This is us. And I know you may say, well, pastor, that's referring to Israel. Yes, it is. But just look at Deuteronomy 7. God choosing Israel is an illustration of the theology of election. And so how God chose Israel is the same way he chooses all of his people. So the baby is us. And so when we recognize who we are as a team, when we win the, celebrate, when we win the championship, we celebrate with a crescendo. You know, one of the, the, the unfortunate side effects of loving Jane Austen movies is that my girls have been deceived as to what true romance is. I mean, Mr. Knightley, at least what they say, Wentworth, and I got to tell you, I, I start to see it with Mr. Darcy, that guy, 2005 Darcy. I'm just telling you. And there at the end of the movie, as, as he's saying, this is Darcy, this is Darcy. I just look over at my girls and the, the tears. And they're like, oh, I want a Darcy. Watch the movie Austin Land. That will remind you that this is not real. Because here's the deal. The, the credits roll after Mrs. Darcy, Mrs. Darcy. There's no second part to the movie. But I can tell you this. They had an argument the next day. And their marriage was on the rocks as the weeks went forward. But Jane didn't write about that. Because that's true reality. And see, beloved, when we have lenses that allow us to see true reality, when we experience the blessing that only God can give us, that he grants to us the clothing of salvation, that he grants to us victory through the blood of Jesus Christ, it should elicit within us a crescendo of celebration. Hallelujah. Which moves me to number three. Hallelujah. Invitation. Now, if you just glance at these verses in Revelation 19, you see that nowhere in verses 9 and 10 is found the word hallelujah. But the principle is. How is that? Well, look at what the angel tells John. Write this. Blessed are those. 
Now remember, when we praise Yahweh, it's because we're excited. It's because we're recognizing his character. It's because we're raising in the crescendo of celebration. And so now John hears, write this, blessed are those. And so you can imagine he's growing in his excitement because whenever the Bible talks about blessing, that's true blessing, isn't it? Because if you and I were to go grab a coffee at a coffee shop and come up with all the bullet points that we would say, in 2024, this would be a blessing for us if this happened, we'd come up with an amazing list, wouldn't we? But the Bible is always going to give us something that satisfies. See, most of those things that we would put on the list would be good experiences. They would have momentary pleasure. But they would also bring within them their own challenges. All of us probably at some point in our lives have dreamed that we would win the lottery. And yet how many times do we read stories of people who actually win the lottery that their lives are a mess afterwards? So only when the Bible speaks of blessing is there true blessing promise. In fact, you could write down Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed are those who don't do this and those who do this because this is what true blessing is. Matthew 5, 3 through 11, blessed are those who do this, for this is what blessing looks like. So John hears from the angel, blessed. And then he says, are those who are what? What does the text say? Those who are invited. This reminds me of a a, a group of doctrines that are known as the doctrines of grace. They're often referred to by terms like Calvinism or predestination or election. And I am passionate about these doctrines. I love these doctrines. I've probably spent more time in my life studying those doctrines than any other group of doctrines, but it wasn't always that way. In fact, there was an extended season of my life that if the pastor I was listening to said anything about election or Calvinism or predestination, I'd be like, I'm out. Please don't do that. The reason why it's so challenging for us is it is an infinite concept that is difficult for our finite minds to wrap around. Oh, but don't throw in the towel too early. There's a reason why God reveals what he does. One of the challenges that I had in my early days of studying these doctrines is the question of how do I know if I'm predestined? How do you know if you're elect? And the same question should be asked here. How do I know if I've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? And thankfully, the text tells us. When you see the glories of God, how do you respond? When the God of Scripture is clearly communicated to you, what is your reaction? Look at what the angel says to John. These are the true words of God, no debate, no question. It's true. Look at how John responds. Worship. Now you say, well, pastor, he, he worships the angel. And so we, got, we have to ask the question, why does he worship the angel? Because the angel was a representative of God. 
When you look throughout Revelation and you see angels described and angels' messages, John usually gives some sort of evidence to show he's a messenger from God, that he came from the throne room, he came from the altar, he shares the same words that we read coming from God. And so the the point is, is that we understand that the angel is the messenger of God, he represents God, and so John sees this, he's so overwhelmed by God that he sees his messenger before him and he worships. He recognizes the value. He's in awe. He's in wonder. So beloved, when you see and hear the glories and the majesties of God, even when it convicts, even when it's uncomfortable, if your response is worship, you're probably elect. There's another evidence of how you can tell if you're invited. Verse 10, It says, the angel said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Literally, in the original language, I am a fellow slave with you. Beloved, if you hear that what God expects of his children is that we are slaves of him, and you you understand that. Now listen, because of the history of our country, I know that terminology, that's a tough one for us to swallow. But, but if it's explained biblically, Romans 6 is a great place for you to go if you want to study that more. But if it's explained biblically and you understand this is the path to true freedom is being a slave to God and you hear that and instead of being uh, upset by that, instead of being frustrated by that, instead of saying, well, that's not fair, instead of saying that, you say, yes, I'm his slave, glory to God, then you're probably invited. Now, how else can we tell? Look at what verse 10 says. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That means the pattern of their lives show that they are faithful. The patterns of their lives show that they are devoted to to the God of Scripture. That the blueprint for their life is not their emotions or what they think or what happened in their childhood or what their expectations are for the future or what will advance them in this world system. Instead, what does God's word say? And I'm going to follow that to the glory of Christ if that's the pattern of your life. And I'm not just saying a snapshot. I'm saying the pattern of your life, then you're probably invited. And where is that found? Well, the end of verse 10, the testimony of Jesus And this is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I think John is specifically referring to the book of Revelation, but you can just extrapolate that to the entire Bible, can't you? Because when you connect the dots of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and and Genesis 49 and and 2 Samuel 7.14 and Daniel 7.14 and Isaiah 11.1 and Isaiah 9.6 and you you start to see Moses saying there's a prophet that's going to come who's going to be better than me. When you look at Deuteronomy 17 and say this is what a king should do and every king fails. And then you see the New Testament and Jesus is on the screen, on the scene and then the church and it's all about Christ. Then you realize you connect those dots and it's all about Christ. This is the testimony of Jesus. And beloved, if you subscribe to that, then you're probably invited. Now, why do I say probably? Because beloved, listen, God is interested in patterns of our life. That should both terrify us and encourage us. It should terrify us because all of us can smile for a snapshot, can't we? hour and 15 minutes every Sunday, we got this. should terrify us because God is looking for patterns, not just snapshots. 
but it should encourage us because there are times, myself included this morning, when a thought, when a word, when an action in a snapshot does not reflect Christ. Praise God for the opportunity to be convicted, repent, and get back on track, all for the glory of the testimony 